reminds us that your spirit came to your church. You, you fill your church with your spirit. Lord, even as 2,000 years later, we're, we're the church that, that needs you, needs your spirit to fill our lives. And thank you that you can fill children, Lord, as they, as they follow you, as they seek to, to know more of you. I pray for friends of Jesus, Lord. They would know your power, your presence, even through their teachers as, they, as they're instructed today, through your word. And Lord, may we who remain in this sanctuary, may your word instruct us and fill us that we might be your people and we might leave here uh, excited about you and committed to serving you and walking with you and knowing you and sharing you with others. We'll give you thanks for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Good morning. Greetings. Probably the warmest Sunday morning we'll have, but nice and cool in here. Thank God for electricity and air conditioning. Amen. And thank God for a second thing of water. I've gone through one water already. I usually, usually one water for me every service. But uh, sometimes you sing too much and you get excited, you, you, your mouth gets dry. But we're in a sermon series, John 15, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. It's abiding. In Christ's love is our title today. Abiding in the vine is our, total, is our, is our, our um, series uh, title. A few months ago, when I was in, in Mobile, Alabama, at our General Assembly, um, I, was, I, I left a workshop. Actually, it was at the end of the workshop. I hadn't left yet. And, and I got a phone call, and it was from my wife, Terry. And, it was, and I said, okay, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and why is she calling me? So I said, I better, I better get that. And, and she was frantic, and she said, a tree almost fell in the house. I'm trying to find a cat. I've got to get out of the house. I said, whoa, that's worth a phone call. <laughs> and, and, and so here's a picture of, what, of what, uh, what it looked like. That's our house right there. That's our neighbor's house there. And that's the tree, boom, right in the middle of it, on the fence. You can't even see the fence. And uh, that's what we were up in. And she said that she was in that room, and she heard it cracking, and she took off just in case it cracked It came into our house. And I'm in Mobile, Alabama, and I saw a picture on the news of, of a house in Elka City that a tree had gone straight through the house. And I said, thank God that wasn't our house. I was sorry for the people that it happened to, but thank God that wasn't our house that experienced that tree. But what, what happened the next, couple, the next week or so, the next few days, um, is that the tree lay in the, it, it, we, we called Carneal and a few others to, to kind of chop it up, but the tree branches were there and the leaves were there for a few days, and it, an interesting thing happened. They began to turn brown and wither and die. And we knew that was going to happen. We expected that to happen. But why did that happen? Because the tree was no longer corrected to the source of life. It was no longer corrected to its root system. It didn't have life. It didn't have the, the refreshment and nourishment that it needed. And Jesus, when he talks about this, this, this picture of I am the true vine and you are the branches, stay, he's saying stay connected to me because I am the source of life. Spiritual life, real life. And that's his challenge for each of us, to stay connected so that we don't wither, so that we don't dry up. The, the teaching of the, John 15 comes during the upper room uh, teaching of Jesus, upper room discourse it's called. Chapter 14 is when he, he tells them, look, I'm leaving. Don't let, your, let your, not your heart be troubles. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving. And they began to understand that, yes, he is going to leave. Then chapter 15, it's all about relationships. 
they realize that they're on a mission. They're the sent ones. They're the apostles. They're called to bear fruit in this world because he's leaving. And how, how are they to relate to God? How are they to relate to one another? How are they to relate to the world? That's what the chapter is all about. The first 11 verses is their relationship to him. Then verses 12 to 17, their relationship to one another. And then the last chapter, verses 13 to 26, their relationship to the outside world. We're taking this month to look at this chapter because we want to understand what it means to be uh, Christ's people who bear fruit in this world. The text is uh, just three verses today, verses 9 to 11, John 15. You have it here on the overhead. You may have a Bible. Let's listen to God's word, ESV translation. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So last week, Elder Anand Kumar, he opened up for us this first section. And today I want to dive a little bit more into this, this, these couple of verses here, these three verses. And they bring us to a very important question that maybe has come to your mind as you think about your faith and you meditate on the gospel in the New Testament. It's a question we need to ponder. If I'm saved by the grace of God, and I am, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, it's by grace that we're saved. If I'm saved by grace, if I'm united to Christ in union with him, as we heard last week, Monitor, if God's unconditional love is all that matters in terms of our being justified and fit and prepared for heaven, then, 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 then why is there so much in the New Testament about keeping commands? It seems contradictory. That's what we want to address this morning. That's what we want to slow down in these, at least three verses. I think today's text gives us some insights into this apparent contradiction. See, God is delighted when we both abide in his love and keep his commands. God, that, 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 that brings joy to God. He's delighted when we abide in his grace and his love, and yet we keep his commands. Jesus is talking about remaining, abiding, dwelling. And he's talking about obeying, keeping commands. He talks about both in this passage. It's important for us to understand how these two things are connected. I believe the contemporary Bible-believing church has done a great job of making sure that people realize that works righteousness is insufficient. You cannot be saved by the works you do. Both done a poor job of calling the people of God, the saints of God, those saved by grace, to pursue gospel holiness, to pursue gospel obedience, to pursue, pursue the commands of God, to keep his commands. We have done a poor job of explaining how they relate. I'm going to try to do that today. We'll talk about the command to abide, the proof that we're abiding, and the joy of abiding in Christ's love. First is the command, the command to abide. Verse 9, as the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus calls us here to abide in his love. It's a command. Abide in my love. Abide is to dwell, to live, to remain, to stay. In other words, don't get disconnected. Don't quit. We must understand that this in, in several contexts. First of all, in the context of chapter 13, where there's a dude named Judas who quit. He took off. He left. He was one of the 12, and he quit. Like the branch that disconnects from its root, 
Judas cut himself off from the source of life. This confirmed that he always was a phony, a devil. In chapter 14, he said, uh, in my father's house are many, King James says, mansions, poor translation, many rooms. Literally, it's, it's many dwelling places, many abiding places. It's the same root as this word abide. In my father's house, there are many abiding places. As the Father has loved me, Jesus has from all eternity been abiding in his Father's love. Do you understand that? He's the Father's unique, beloved Son. Remember that voice from heaven at his baptism in the transfiguration? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He's the beloved Son. The irony is that within 24 hours, he would be uniquely cut off from fellowship with his Father as he bore our sins on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father has loved me, so in the same way have I loved you. Jesus is speaking of those who followed him, okay? He says, you, I've loved you. It's a particular love that Jesus has for those who believe. This love is, is more than mere Western sentimentality. It's not just a sentimental, romantic kind of love. It's a tough, volitional, covenantal commitment to our total well-being. That's his love. That's the kind of love we're talking about. It's a love that acts, a love that does, that does what needs to be done to help us in our situation, our desperate situation. The Father acted in incarnation by sending us his Son, didn't he? He said, Son, go, go to earth. And Jesus willingly did that. The Father acted. And the Son acted by willingly going to the cross, as painful as that was, the Father and the Son intentionally acting because they loved us. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Many, unfortunately, want to be saved by their works rather than the work of Christ. Jesus said that the only work that puts us right with God is the work of believing. In John 6, he said this, John 6, 20 to 29. He said to him, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe. If you, don't, if you haven't done that yet, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the work of God is to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's your Savior. That he died on a cross for sinners. To, to confess, to repent, to turn, to believe, to embrace Christ. Jesus, earlier in the, in this, in, in the book of John, in chapter 13, when the, in the up, as the upper room began, as they had that Passover meal, you remember, remember what happened in John chapter 13? He said, Jesus, knowing he was loved by the Father, he showed them the, the full extent of his love, and he washed their feet. He washed their feet. That was the job of the slave in that day. You would go into the house, and the, and the, the servant or the slave would would wash the feet of those who, who had dirty feet from walking along. They had sandals, but their feet got dirty. And, and as they entered into that upper room, with all that was going on in their minds, no one said, hey, let's walk. who's going to do the job of the slave? No one did it. Jesus did it. And do you, and do you remember what happened in that, in, that, in that scene? When Jesus washed their feet, he came to Peter, and, and, and Peter said, Lord, I should be washing your feet. You can't, I can't let you wash my feet. Remember, and remember the, the dialogue that happened right there? 
says, if I don't wash your feet, then we have, you have no part with me. I, I, the, 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 Jesus, and so Peter says, okay, Lord, if, if, if you're washing my feet, means that we have fellowship together. Don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. Give me a bath. That's Peter. And do you remember what Jesus said there? Very important. It's a secondary point in the passage, but it's very important. Jesus tells Peter, if you've already had a bath, you don't need another one. You just have to have your feet washed. What's he talking about there? If you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ once, you don't have to do it again. That's good news, ain't it? But your feet get dirty. Walking in this dirty world, amen? You've got to let Jesus wash them. You've got to let Jesus wash your feet. And if you don't do that, you have no part, no fellowship with Jesus. Because we're the people who get dirty, don't we? And we need our feet washed constantly, don't we? Jesus could love us because he abided in his Father's love. And abiding in the love of the Father is transformative, life-changing. It enables us to love one another as he commanded us to. Now, the second thing is verse 10, the proof that we're abiding, the proof that we're abiding in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. We, we, we might see that if, and think it's being conditional, and, and that's unfortunate. It is not a condition of abiding, but it's proof that we're abiding. Keeping of his commandments doesn't make us children of God. It reveals that we're children of God. Here, here in essence, is what the verse is saying. If you keep my commandments, you will prove yourself to be one who abides in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and prove myself to be one who abides in his love. It doesn't make it, it proves it. So those who abide are keeping his commands and those who keep his commands are abiding. What's meant by keeping the commands? So let's talk about that. Uh, the commands. The Bible has all kinds of commands and rules and laws. And, and are we still bound by them? We're free in Christ, aren't we? Well, the summarization of, of, the, the, ten, of the commandments is in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and, and, and Exodus chapter 20. These are the, the Ten Commandments. If you're, if you're a, a college football fan, you think of the Big Ten. Well, this is the Big Ten. This is the real Big Ten right here. This is the big ten. That's the, 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 the football, that's the little ten. This is the big ten, the ten commandments that we need to know, we need to, to reflect on, the ten commandments. And there are two sections to these commandments. The first half is, is our responsibilities towards God. The second half is our responsibilities towards one another, our fellow man. And as you know, Jesus summarized several times this. when He, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And notice the two sections. He says in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, Teacher, they asked, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God, this is the first half of the commandments, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, actually. Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 38. This is the great and first commandments. And, 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 and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18 right there. Love God and love your neighbor. Very consistent with what the Old Testament, the Big Ten are all about. Love God, love neighbor. Paul, in, in, in Romans 13, he looks at this and summarizes the second section, Romans 13, 8 and following. He says, 
Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What's he talking about? The second half of the law, uh, of the Ten Commandments, the law, uh, is wrapped up by love. Again, the, the, the commandments are divided into two sections. Is keeping the commands of God something that we do perfectly? No, not in this life. We're tainted. That's why we have Romans chapter 7, the struggle that we see in Romans 7. Look at what John later in 1 John 1 says. Very important verses. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Walking in the light, being transparent before God, being open before God, walking in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in case you didn't hear it the first time, he repeats, if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar. His word is not in us. I don't want to be called a liar by God. I don't know about you. What's meant by abiding in his love? Abiding in his love. Leon Morris says, abiding in his love is not some mystical experience. It's simply obedience. It's when a man keeps Christ's commandments that he abides in Christ's love. It's believing in Jesus. 1 John 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 1 John 3, 24, it's keeping his command. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And it's loving one another. 1 John 4, I'm going to read some verses from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 16, dropping down. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. There he is. John calling us a liar again if, if we don't do that. He, for he, is, he, he does not love his brother. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Abiding, it's believing in Jesus, it's keeping his commandments, it's loving one another. These are, point, these are proof that we abide. Now, one, one of the most frustrating things about biblical teaching sometimes is that often there are paradoxes, things that, that don't seem to fit, don't, they seem to contradict each other. Um, and we try to solve them, but... Actually, I think we need to not always try to solve them. Ultimately, we need to just embrace them, embrace them for what they say. I don't think we deal well with the paradoxes of, of our faith. And there are many. <laughs> there are many. Uh, one, one paradox is the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That's a paradox. And you can find all kinds of books that, that explain that, to, and, some, and very, very good books. But ultimately, with our pea brains, we have to say it, it worked. That's who he is. We know that from Scripture. Scripture reveals that. There's, there's the, 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 the paradox of, 
of, of, of God's sovereignty and our freedom. It's, it's a, how do you put that together? Again, you can read and read and read. Ultimately, it's by faith that we embrace this because Scripture teaches both, teaches that we are responsible and yet God is sovereign. And see, in this passage, Jesus talks about abiding in love, in his love, and keeping his commandments. And for many of us, of us that's confusing. What do you want me to do, just love you or obey you? For some, that's just confusing. In the church, there are two contrasting views of Christian maturity, obeying God or loving God. And we say, well, to be a mature Christian, I just need to love God. To, to be a mature Christian, I need to just obey God. Well, how does this work? Keep the commandments. The Christian life, some say, is simply obeying God, keeping his commandments. That's the key to the, life, the Christian life. The danger, you see, is that if we believe like that, we're not careful, we become legalists. Guilty of simply replacing Old Testament legalism for New Testament legalism. And that doesn't work. Didn't work then, doesn't work now. In, 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 the, um, in church history, the, um, Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, he tried following God in a legalistic way, and he found it didn't work. R.C. Sproul has a great paragraph. We have it here. Secular academics have the most trouble wrapping their minds around the intense personal guilt that Luther felt during his early years. His fear of God's wrath paralyzed him. He constantly looked over his shoulder for the Lord to strike him. He froze during the, the consecration of the communion elements during his first celebration of the Mass due to his awareness of his own unworthiness before God. Moreover, he got on the nerves of his monastic supervisors, confessing every trivial sin he could think of, and yet never finding his guilty conscience assuaged. If you're a legalist, that, that can happen. <laughs> you become so introspective and so frustrated that you can't follow all the rules. That's what extreme focus on the law will, will, will bring you. I believe that as a church, and as people in this church, in this denomination committed to biblical reformation theology, most of us understand the danger of legalism. Most of us do, I believe. But there's a contrasting danger, a contrasting perspective. There's just this dangerous, potentially. This is the idea that Christian maturity is simply about loving God. Just love God. Just rest in His grace, that's all. And then automatically you will grow. Just toss the commands aside. Toss what the Scriptures say aside. Just love God. St. Augustine had a quote that's often misquoted. He did say that... that Love God and do what you please, but he, 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 he's not, and he says that reducing that to a, just a simple love ethic. Here's a fuller quote. Love, St. Augustine, love and do what you will, whether you hold your peace, through love hold your peace. Whether you cry out, through love cry out. Whether you correct, through love correct. Whether you spare, through love do you spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. He is, Augustine is saying that all of our ethical actions should have, have love as their root. He's affirming that righteousness begins in our hearts. But he's not saying that specific ethical mandates are not necessary. He never says that. The danger is that if we're not careful, we become what theologians call antinomians. We become against the law, antinomos, against law. We become believers with no commitment to repenting before God, no, no commitment to, to having a life that's transformed before God. No commitment to, to, to following after holiness, which he says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. We become proponents of what D Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. 
cheap grace. Many solve this dilemma by ignoring one for the other. Our biblical calling is to clearly to both love and obey. Recently, I saw a, a Christianity Today had an article um, pointing to the crisis of pastoral leadership in our world, in our church, and um, more and more pastors are seemingly leaving their churches for a variety of reasons, ranging from sexual immorality to just extreme lack of love and humility and, and sensitivity to their congregations. And this is a merely reflection of the greater Christian community, I believe, which has refused to grapple with a biblical call to holiness and reduce the Christian love life to a love ethic. I believe we in, in the PCA, our denomination, and in, in, here at Faith, uh, have a very healthy fear of legalism, as I said. We see it as a poison. My concern is, is, is we need to take more seriously this issue of keeping the commands. What does it mean? We fear legalism so much that we act like Jesus said, if you love me, ignore my commandments. He didn't say that. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the third and last thing is, is verse 11, the result of our abiding. What happens when we abide, when, when, when we do what he's talking about here in this passage? These things I've spoken to you that may, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. ESV study Bible it says two results stem from this relationship, obe obedience and joy. Those are two results, obedience and joy. Obedience marks the cause of their fruitfulness, and joy is its result. Now, the result of this abiding is, is a, it, it, look carefully, it's, two, it's a twofold joy. It's my joy, God's joy, and it's the joy of God in us in its fullness, our joy. There's two joys going on. You see that? Our joy, his joy, and his joy in us fully. Uh, Bruce Milne says, to submit to Christ is no hardship. Rather, it's the road to liberation. It therefore brings joy, the joy of Christ's presence welling up in our hearts. The reference to joy in the context of the fruit of the vine is appropriate. The connection to fruit bearing is obvious. For the joy of the Lord in the lives of his people is supremely attractive to the non-Christian world. You remember in the, in the, the, the exiles came back and, and they were working on building the wall and it took months and months to build that wall and, and, and as they built the wall, it says in the book of Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord was their strength. Okay? There's a, there's a strength that comes by experiencing the joy that God gives us. But to resist Christ, it's not joy, it's hardship. It is hardship. Submit to him is joy. Many, I'm sure, have watched uh, the Olympics over the last few weeks. Um, uh, the opening exercises, uh, I saw a little bit of the opening exercises. They, you saw the people as they experienced, as they came in, just glad to be there, glad that they were in the house, glad that they were in the stadium as, as they represented their, own, their, their countries. Um, th th there was a lot of joy. And it's funny. If you watch those opening exercises, um, a country comes in, they walk, people cheer. The other country comes in. It, it, that's all that happens. I mean, you have, you have a little pizzazz that goes on with it. But it's just, uh, you're just walking around. Praying. But this joy, great joy, because the, the joy of just being there. That's a picture of salvation in one, in one sense. There's, there's just a, a, the joy of being there, of knowing Christ and experiencing his salvation, that we, that we should all have that sense of joy. But you know what? There's another kind of joy that some of the Olympians feel. 
That's the joy of winning. <laughs> the joy of winning. The joy of, 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 of accomplishing what they came there to, 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 to do, to, to, to win the gold, to win the crown. You know, the, the Apostle Paul talked about the game. She said, the, the, talked about in 1 Corinthians, running to win the crown. They, don't, they didn't have gold medals. They had a crown, a laurel wreath that they won in, in their Olympic games back there in, in, the, first, in the old ancient days. Um, the New Testament writers spoke, speak of a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory. and says that those who are in Christ are going to receive that crown. Isn't that a great, great blessing? You know what? As a believer, we all have the joy of salvation. But you know what? As a believer, you can have the fullness of God's joy. The fullness of his joy. But not just resting in salvation, but moving on. Moving on to, to, to begin to, to reflect his character and reflect his deeds by pursuing holiness. That's what God, that's what God wants us to do. God, that's what God wants us to be. And, and the last thing as we close, don't forget this. As we see the, the, the Olympic, the joy of the Olympians and, and the joy of, of, of accomplishing, of being there and accomplishing the, the, the feats, the ultimate joy is not ours. <laughs> The ultimate joy is the joy of God. And if you love God, and if he saved you from your sins, and he has given you a home with him in heaven, your ultimate passion should be that he, your Lord, your Savior, would experience joy from your life. Not just the joy that you're in the house, but the joy that you're living for him. That you're, living, that, that you're keeping his commandments as best you can. And then when you don't, you say, I, I confess my sins and you're faithful and just forgiving my sins and you just keep going to, to, to obey his word. That's what that, J Jesus wants his, his disciples to understand that before he goes away. And I think we still need to understand that more clearly. Then we're called to, to, to rest in his grace and pursue holiness at the same time. May, may we appreciate and understand how these two things fit together, that we might be the people of God. We might be a holy people whose lives reflect the glory of God. And where the world can say, I might not understand it, but I wish I could live like that. Because I see Christ in their lives. Let's pray. Well, this is a dangerous message because the worst thing that we could do is to proclaim that works can save. I pray we haven't done that. I pray we understand that, that it's not by works of righteousness we've done, but it's by, by your grace and mercy that we, that we have experienced salvation. But Lord, we who are, who are saved, we need to take more seriously, I believe, what you call us to do, and who you call us to be as the people of God. Those who have received mercy, those who are now walking as Jesus walked, those who, when we stumble, know where to go because he's faithful and just to forgive us, and he washes our feet. But I pray you would use this in our lives, that we might be people that you can use 
in other people's lives as well. And most of all, that we might see you glorified and more joyful because of what you see in our lives. May it be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.